0: Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Mari Judah. This uh, portion in the book of Leviticus now shifts from the attention of Aaron and his sons as to how they will render the priestly duty with a whole series of different offerings. And it speaks specifically of the eighth day of the dedication of the tabernacle when Aaron began to do the duties of being high priest of Israel and began to make offering. Up to this point, basically, things were under the instruction and control of Moses as a part of this initial dedication. But now Aaron will begin to take his rightful and proper place as being high priest of Israel. And on this eighth day, like the dedication of the altar... This is the first day, and we call it the eighth day of the dedication, but it's actually the first day of the traditional service of the altar. Up to this point, dedications have been being made, but now, for the first time, the daily sacrifice will begin, and thus we have a very interesting spiritual understanding, which comes from the number eight. Everywhere that we will look within Scripture, particularly within Torah, the number 8 will always represent one particular theme to us, and that is the theme of new beginnings. If you allow me to use the expression on the 8th day of the week, it's a new week. And in the same way, 8 has been used by God uh, to be the beginnings, new beginnings of many things. And it's a new beginning for Aaron in particular. If you'll recall in the previous portions as we were going through Exodus, Aaron, of course, had a um, a little bit of difficulty back some time ago. Moses was up on the mountain, and Aaron and her were down there trying to keep a handle on the children of Israel. Some 39 days had gone by, everybody got impatient, and the children of Israel rose up to play, and they decided to make an idol. And they... Uh, for whatever means and whatever method it was done Aaron participated in this process and if you recall he gave explanation to his brother Moses by saying well we threw the gold into the fire and out came this golden calf and of course we know that there was more to it than that so guess what sacrifice Aaron must make first sacrifice for himself before the Lord to, to assume his proper duties as high priest of Israel he has to take calf of a bull and slay that calf before the Lord. And the Lord is going to do something very interesting with this particular bull that will be slain because Moses says that after you come and do this, you will see the glory of the Lord. Follow along with me now as we read from Leviticus chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a calf, a bull. For a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Then to the sons of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both one year old without defect for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord shall appear to you. So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent meeting, and the whole congregation came near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses then said to Aaron, Come near to the altar. And offer your sin offering and your burnt offering that you may atone for yourself and for the people. Then make the offering for the people that you may make atonement for them just as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came near to the altar and slaughtered the calf of the sin offering which was for himself. And Aaron's sons presented the blood to him and he dipped his finger in the blood and put some on the horns of the altar and poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. The fat and the kidneys and the Of the liver of the sin offering. He then offered up in smoke on the altar, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin, however, he burned with fire outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed the blood to him, and he sprinkled it around on the altar, and they handed the burnt offering to him in pieces with the head, and he offered them up in smoke on the altar. He also washed the entrails and the legs and offered them up in smoke with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, and slaughtered it and offered it up for sin like the first. He also presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the ordinance. Now he presented the grain offering and filled his hand with some of it and offered it up in smoke on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he slaughtered the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons handed the blood to him, and he sprinkled it around on the altar. As for the portions of fat from the ox to the ram, the fat tail and the fat covering and the kidney and the lobe of the liver, they had now placed portions... Of fat on the breast, and he offered them up in smoke on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh, Aaron presented as a wave offering before the Lord, just as Moses had commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down from making the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out and blessed the people. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Elijah when he challenged the prophets of Baal and they erected altars and the fire came down from heaven and consumed the altar, the sacrifice, and so forth that Elijah had put. That reason why that testimony of Elijah was so powerful to Israel is because it was a repeat of what had happened this day when the glory of the Lord was seen by all the peoples. There is a future day coming, when we too will see the glory of the Lord coming as a consuming fire. And it will come all the way from heaven and come down and it will not be done until it has purified everything in this earth. And it will be because of this day. It will be because and consistent with these things which God established when he established Aaron as high priest. That high priest that will be coming will be Yeshua, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, as opposed to after the order of the Levites. Now, this was a wonderful day. This was a tremendous day. All Israel was unified. All saw the glory of the Lord. You know, this was a great day. And then tragedy hit. The sons, the two oldest sons of Aaron, then did something that was not and had not been commanded. Of the Lord. We don't know exactly what it was, but somehow they came near to the altar and it says to offer a strange fire. We don't know exactly what that means. But the fire of the Lord that was there at the altar reached out and destroyed both men right there before Aaron, his family, Moses, and all of Israel. And if we read here in chapter 10, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans after putting fire in them, placed incense on them, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. Altars is very, very serious business to the Lord. It is not something that we should consider light. Aaron was not even permitted at this moment because he was under the anointing oil. He was not permitted to carry his sons forth. Other men had to come in, other brethren had to come in. He had to remain and continue to do the duties of priest of Israel. This business of holiness, that which is separated under the Lord, is it's kind of a quantum issue. By that I mean it's either one way or it's the other way. And if you're going to be holy, then you're going to be all the way holy. And if you're not going to be holy, then you're not partly holy. It's one or the other. It's a little bit like a lady is not partly pregnant. She's either pregnant or she is not. And you are either holy before the Lord or you are not. And in this case, we see a very striking example as to the strength of this teaching. There are many commentators who address this passage of Scripture and try to understand, well, what is it that they did that was so grievous that it was a sin literally unto death and it's not really well understood because there's an admission on the part of the commentators that we really don't understand what God's holiness really is we're, in, we're mortals And all we can accept is that which God says and defines about himself, and it is upon us to simply accept that. Last week, um, one of the things that we talked about was the beginning of the book of Leviticus, that this is the book in which that it gives many commandments and instructions that are not readily self-evident. They are statutes, God's statutes. And as a result... We don't fully understand why this transpired or the nature of it, but we recognize that it did. And it is upon us and behooves us to simply accept it and go forward with God's definition of what it is about, which really kind of sets the stage. Because the Lord goes on and we think that maybe that part of the mistake of Nadav and Avihu was this strange fire business, was what would have caused them to be so presumptuous so as to come and do something the Lord did not command? What made them think in the situation that they were in, having just seen the glory of God and everybody falling on their faces, what made them think that they should go and do something in the midst of that moment? And some have suggested that there's a possibility that they had consumed alcoholic beverages to the extent that they were drunk and they were not thinking right. And it seems to follow because that's what is follows now in chapter 10 and verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you or your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you may not die. It is a perpetual statue throughout your generations, and so as to make distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean. That part of this business about holiness is it's very distinct and very different from profane things. And what God is trying to teach us about that, he does so in a variety of ways. The book of Leviticus will later go on to specify to us clean and unclean things, laws of purity. And in fact, in the very next chapter begins the famous chapter of kosher, clean and unclean animals that can be made fit and proper to be made as food or used as food. And so it seems to flow and follow that from this example as an example of holy and profane that he begins to try to teach us about holiness by telling us about some other things. And in this case, the instruction not only about don't be drunk, be sober, as being a good example of between the difference between holy and profane. I mean, you know, if you see a drunk man and he's making a scene, everybody notices. Everybody can tell either by his breath, his speech, his behavior. And there's a world of difference between a sober man and a drunk man. If there was one drunk man in this room here this evening, I assure you everybody here would notice it. Everyone would notice. And really that's the difference between holy and profane. Holy is that distinct and separate from profane. Everybody knows. Nobody needs to have it explained to him. It just is. Is just as that different. So now it follows through with some very interesting instruction about kosher. And I would like to take this teaching time that we have here this evening to really address two particular points about kosher. Again, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you, but let me read the beginning portion so you get a sense of it. Leviticus chapter 11 verse 1, the Lord spoke again to Moses and said to Aaron, saying to them, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth, whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and chews the cud among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof. The camel, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. Likewise, the rock badger, for it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. The rabbit also, for though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew cud. It is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh nor touch of their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Now, Let's just be real honest and straightforward with regard to all of the people of God at this point. While it is the custom of Israel to abstain from unclean animals, to to eat of the clean, to keep kosher, and the word kosher means to make fit or proper, the fact of the matter is most of Israel doesn't keep that law. I'm telling you the truth. It's a kind of a cultural thing. But I know of a lot of Jewish people who in no wise obey this commandment and keep kosher. Now, on the Christian side of things, culturally, if you brought this subject up, everyone would probably say, consensus-wise, this is a Jewish thing. This is not a thing for the people of God, particularly those of the New Covenant, why we don't eat or keep kosher. And to even suggest the possibility that maybe these commandments of God are still binding and still appropriate and still should be obeyed by the people of God, whether they be Jew or believing Gentile into the New Covenant, borders on, and most people almost have a you know, heart palpitation over the thing they think it's something to do with legalism. Oh my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm becoming a Jew. Um... And there's fright, you know, with regard to keeping these. Besides that, if you go down through, there's a quite an exhaustive list. Exactly Now, what exactly is cleanly, you know, the split hoof chews the cut, or doesn't chew the cud? You know, and it gets a little confusing. In a general sense, we could say the following. That all of the things that eat of dead things, or have to do with dead things... Generally, as a rule of thumb, God has said, no, I don't want you to eat that. Now, we could stop from just that alone and we could say, now, what is God really doing here? For example, let's just take Israel. Why, God, did you specify these commandments to Israel? And maybe you would first go with the argument, well, you know, it's better for you. You remember last week I was talking about why do we keep the commandments? Well, you know, the first thing is it's better for you. I mean, you know, if you eat this unclean stuff, don't you get diseases from it and and all of those kinds? It would be better for you. And by the way, as a general consensus, that's true. But I don't know that that's sufficient reason to keep these commandments because I know of a lot of Gentiles who are believers in the New Covenant. They don't keep any of these kosher laws, and they're healthier than I am. I mean, I wouldn't want to stack myself up as the example of keeping the commandment and my health to be measured against some other guy, and he's in perfectly good health. You know, I mean, all you do is just fester more argument and probably confusion. So isn't there something more about this commandment as to why we should keep it? Well, shall we resign ourselves to, well, it's one of those not-so-self-evident commandments, which I talked to you that Leviticus will cover, And just out of sheer faith, let's just believe God. Well, that's a pretty good reason. I mean, you know, but that takes a little maturity in our faith. And aren't all of God's commandments given at the simplest level? You don't have to be a Torah scholar to understand the Lord. I have said to you many times before in teaching about our faith, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's the real essence of our faith. It's knowing God, not necessarily all the ins and outs of the kashrut rules and laws and and being able to observe in the most perfect way. Of course, you realize that religious men do tend to want to put that knowledge factor into as a qualifier for knowing God properly. And if you don't do it exactly the way I specify, in the way that I've been doing it, well, then you're probably not quite doing it right. And so religious men will use some of this to put people into subjection. And to a very great extent, Israel has done this. Israel has used this set of commandments to literally regard, all you Gentiles as unclean. I don't read anywhere in here about man being declared unclean. But Israel has taken these commandments and said... If a man eats of these unclean things, therefore he is unclean. Didn't it kind of say that? Didn't it kind of say something about you're not supposed to eat of these things because you're to be clean before the Lord? Now, that was a statement that Moses made about our relationship with God, but ancient Israel took these and used these as a statement about other men. And in fact, that's still going on today. It's still going on today. Now, put a little bit of a humorous spin on it, and I got this from uh, Brother Ralph Messer. You know, he's uh, the Torah teacher up in Colorado, and he has many brethren that he's teaching there, and he, is, he and I get a chance to chat every once in a while and talk about how's it going and teaching the brethren and the Torah and so forth. And he has this wonderful expression for some of his new students, and I've seen some of these uh, that weren't necessarily under Ralph's teaching, but uh, some of these that we refer to as the Sabbath police, the kosher patrol, and Torah terrorists. <laughs> these are the ones who take the commandments of God, and they go around lacerating and flogging other brethren with. And this is a wonderful passage of Scripture to flog many brethren with. You know what I mean? Kosher. You know, let's lay it on everybody. Kosher. Now, brother, let me, for those of you who may be new in our assembly and you're still going through this minor heart attack at the moment, you mean you guys keep kosher here? Yes, yes, there's many brethren here who are trying to learn these commandments, and yes, we do abstain from these things. I'll get back to that in just a moment, but let's uh, review this specific teaching as for what it says, first of all. why Why did God... Give these laws. Why is it in the book of Leviticus? Why, why is it organized in this particular way? Why is the Torah teaching it in this manner right after the story about God trying to explain holy and profane to us? Why does he give foods as one of the things he's trying to teach that to us about? And I think it has to do with some more broad teaching that we find throughout all of Torah that has to do with us, people, men, you and I. What are we really like? God has made us to live life, to procreate, to enjoy all of the blessings of life. And there are certain dimensions of life that can be, if we don't put them under control, can be abused to our harm, to the harm of others. And basically, you've already heard of them, and we've talked, and just to put them in a simple nutshell, they're all the things of life that can be lusted after. All the things of life in which that we move into the mode, I want, not I need. But you go beyond need and you say, I want. I want more. Now, God, for example, wants every one of us to grow to maturity, be prosperous, be successful, to do well, to be responsible for ourselves to care for others, to do many good works. There's no question about it. In fact, there's much wisdom that is taught in the Scripture that teaches you how to have a good name, how to be a success. In fact, God promises, if you will obey me, I will bless you. I will give you good success and make your way prosperous. But some men say, I'm going to take my ego. I'm going to take my ambition. And I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to do it. I. And thus, this very good thing to be successful, to do well in life, to be established, to be, stand on your own two feet, be responsible for yourself, some men take it farther and now mix it with pride and ambition and ego. And the Lord says, enough already. You will not go that far. In fact, I would prefer that you are successful, but do it humbly. Do it appropriately. Don't try to bring things upon yourself. Concentrate on living for another. I will exalt you. You humble yourself before me. But some men say, no, I want it all for me. And we know pride, that particular kind of pride, is wrong. It's not appropriate. It's not right. It will cause harm to them, to others. And therefore, we have instructions in the Scripture that set limits and say, don't do that. Another thing that God has given us in our lives is that He has given us the desire, the physical desire to have sexual relations, to bear children, to love our wives, our husbands, And that's a thing that God has made. God has said the marriage bed is undefiled. That in the realm of marriage where vows are made, that that relationship is a special, intimate relationship that has been given for recreation, for procreation. And there's much good and much fulfillment that comes when we do it. But if that activity goes beyond those things, goes further, I want, I lust... Great harm comes to the person and to others. In fact, they say that sexual sins is the only sin that is a sin against yourself into your own body. And God has set limits on that lust, on that appetite for that part of life, and said, you have up to your needs, but you do not go beyond into the lust." that I have made this for to be in this place in this way, but it is not to be abused and not to be misused in that place. And thus we come to the subject of food. Another appetite. You ever heard the expression, do you live to eat or do you eat to live? Some would be honest and say, well, I really live to eat. I really like to go out to the restaurants. I really, I really like. And you know, there's some people, there's some people in this world who have gone beyond the needed nourishment of their body. And they have now made eating to be, I like to eat anything as long as I get enough garlic butter with it. I'll eat stuff that looks like bugs if I can get garlic, garlic butter with it. I will eat stuff that crawl around on the bottom of the ocean that are ugly and eat other dead things if I can get enough lemon butter with it. And they go beyond. They go beyond what God has provided that meets our needs. And now their life has become to have those things. Brethren, let me ask you this. If a man let's say, controls his pride of life. Let's say that a man even controls his sexual appetite, and yet he goes and he consumes of these things to the extreme. What's the difference between him and some guy who's just egotistical or some guy who's profane in his sexual behavior? What's the difference Your appetites that you have for life are not under control, and you're just following after your lusts. Why would we discriminate between one who is in one behavior but not in another? Or for that matter, why do we excuse such behaviors? We don't excuse the behavior in this assembly for a man who's egotistical or sexually perverse. Why would we tolerate the other? And I think the reason why we find ourselves in that situation is because a lot of people don't equate food and the lust of food at the same level with these other issues of life. Oh, we all agree. Sexually being perverse, that's unacceptable. Guys' lusts are way out of control. Absolutely, we're all agreed on that. But overeating is not. And eating the wrong things which will cause harm to them is not. How is that? how is that how is it that we judge that way what the lord has given us is he's given us some very fair and appropriate instructions on how to be successful in living our life and all of these all of these issues about lust the pride of life sexual activity and food they all are used as definitions for us to help us to understand the difference between clean and unclean holy and profane he's trying to teach us for example that when you look down at this piece of pork chop you're supposed to be highly offended just as you would see some other profane unholy thing you're supposed to be learning holiness but quite honestly you know we live in a society today you know truly the prophets would say we are an unclean people <laughs> in which that we don't have that aversion We see the unclean, and we're not offended. It doesn't stir us to run back to God. As a society, it's across the board. I mean, the world flaunts, flaunts getting rich. In this country in particular. In fact, if you're working in the secular world and you're not doing well on the stock market and you're not making proper investments and you're not earning all kinds of money and so forth and building more barns and so forth, there's something wrong with you. And people actually would look down upon you. And to a certain extent, the society has now come, what used to be only spoken of in secret, as far as sexual behaviors, when I was a kid, is now on TV in the prime time family hour. Right. I mean, you know, and I know, that homosexuality has become definitely a propagated lifestyle into our world. And you are expected that if you go into the workplace and run into one of these folks, you're expected to just act perfectly normally adjusted and just accept them warmly. And if you do else, why, you're homophobic. You hate mankind. You hate men. You hate people. And so we have a whole new definition for hate crimes and hate laws and so forth. And if you were to assert any kind of a definition that comes from the book of Leviticus with regard to what is right and proper, you know, you would be branded in this world as more than crazy. I mean, literally, you're, you're uh, hurting other people. I saw a church one time that had the word holiness, H uh, O L I N E S S, with a big red circle around it, and a slash, this was a church. The word holiness with a, like a band holiness marker. And they had a replacement for it W H O L E, you know, I N E S. Wholeness. They've even changed the word in the world we live today, where they would promote wholeness instead of holiness. And they think holiness is a bad thing. You know what blasphemy is, brethren? It's when you take something that's holy and you say it's unholy. Or if you take something unholy and you say it's holy. That's blasphemy. Blasphemy, of course, is the biggie sin, the same cardinal sin, uh you know, and if you have to remember, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the sin unto death. That's that's a big one right there. It's when you would say God's definition of what is holy is not. Now, part of the reason in this world that we don't understand holiness is because the very things that God has given to us to teach us holiness, how to control our appetites, how to control our lusts. We're not following. And the world is certainly not doing it. And so the question comes down to, for us as a people of God, the congregation here that would be bearing witness and testimony to if we're going to be a people who are going to be holy, even as he is holy, and we're going to give the testimony of holiness and show forth the Lord, then there's a whole series of things he says you need to do. Now, if it's not your desire to be holy, and to show forth holiness of God to other people, then you don't have to worry about these commandments. Because that's what these are for. It's to teach you to be how to be holy and to be holy before the Lord. And he says, for example, these are certain foods that you will... these certain animals are considered clean, and these are certain ones that are not clean, and these are the ones that you may eat of, and these are the ones you may not eat of. And it goes on to even say the following things. I don't care if it is a cow... And I don't care if it did walk out there on the road. If it got hit by a truck and it's killed dead, it cannot be made kosher. You will not eat roadkill. Thank you, Lord. I really don't care for roadkill, to tell you the truth. It kind of turns my stomach when I see it. And he says, furthermore, other things like, when you slay the animal, you must slay it mercifully. You do not get to torture the animal. You will remember that I, the Lord, made the animal. You will honor me and life. So when you eat of it, you will remember, even in the fact that you may partake of it, you'll still remember all of the things that I am and about what I'm about so that you learn about holiness, and you will not take some cow, cut his front leg off, eat that leg while he's still alive. That's repulsive, isn't it? Do you know people do that? People do that in the world. He said, you will not do that. He said, you will not be bizarre in the way that you do things. You won't, for example, take the kid, the goat, and take its mother's milk, its own milk that gives its nourishment and life to the little kid, and you will not take that kid, butcher it up, and cook it in the mother's milk. You will not be mixing symbols about life. You will honor and sanctify life even if you do slay the animal to eat its flesh. You will do it fit and proper. And thus we have the term kosher. Now for most of us, we just run down to the big supermarket and we see all the packages in the cellophane and we purchase them and we haul them home and you know we think that's it. But it had to come from somewhere, didn't it? I mean, the flesh that you're getting ready to eat, it came from some animal, right? It's important for us, if we're going to consume this and live and be nourished from it, to recognize an animal gave its life for us. Now, it would be a whole lot different if you had the animal in your home and you went out and you had to do all the work. I guarantee you, have, you would have a whole different opinion about putting that stuff in your mouth after that. About a year ago, some brethren, friends of ours, invited us down, uh, to their place. Some brethren came down and they have some goats. And they decided to have a little feast, all of us brethren coming down there. And so the plan was that we would all be departing at about, oh, nine, ten o'clock, and that we'd be arriving down there at, oh, about one o'clock, and they were gonna slay a kid, a goat, and roast it, you know, cook it, slow cook it, And we were going to have goat and rice, pilaf, and some going to have a feast. And so when we arrived down there, uh, to everybody's kind of surprise, they were announcing, well, uh, uh, actually dinner is going to be a little bit later. Well, you know, what what do you mean a little bit later? You know, like half an hour later? Well, no, not exactly. Well, when were we supposed to eat? One o'clock, when do you think we'll be able to eat? Oh, about four, three hours. You know, what happened? Well, uh... Me and my brother, you know, we went out to get the goat, and we selected it at 8 o'clock that morning. We took it in the barn. We were going to slay it and skin it and prepare it, and, uh, well, it took us about three hours before we could do it. You know, first of all, we had to pray, Then we started bawling, and then I handed the knife to him, and he didn't want to do it, and he gave the knife to me, and we had a big argument about who was going to do it, and in the meantime, the kid was working around playing, and that just made it worse. (laughs) It's a lot different, brethren, when you understand that these commandments were given in honor of life. And God was saying, I want you to understand about life. I want you to understand about me. I want you to understand about holy and profane. And I want you to be holy. I want you to honor life. I don't want you to be profane. And for those who have to prepare the animals, actually slay the animals, this is very serious business. These commandments made a lot of sense. Now, for us who don't have to slay the animals, they seem a little vague. And in fact, we have alternate teachings you know, about them. I would like to address tonight the teaching that is going to be used against you if the subject of kosher comes up. It comes out of the New Testament that they're going to try to use against you about this teaching. And so we need to examine that teaching and make sure we understand it in relationship to what was really being said here. So if you would, turn with me now to Acts chapter 10. Peter is in the fine city of Joppa. He's staying with Simon the Tanner. And he decides to go up on the roof... To pray. But there's another man in a city not far away, just up north, up the coast in Caesarea. His name is Cornelius, and he's a Roman centurion. There's no question about this guy. This guy's Gentile. You know, the type of Gentiles who eat unclean things, and all us good Jews know they're unclean. And so the story goes about Cornelius, that he was a devout man. This is chapter 10, verse 2. One who feared God with all his households and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And in the ninth hour of the day he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who came just to him and said, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? He said, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now dispatch men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a certain tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And specifically the angel said, I want you to go and get this Peter and bring him to you and he will teach you. Now, Peter is there in Joppa and he's right where the Lord knows where he's at. And he goes up on the rooftop to pray and he gets a vision and he gets a vision. And the scripture says for us, in verse 10, and he became hungry and was desiring to eat, but when they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he beheld the sky opened up, and a certain object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures of the earth, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, by the way, these were all unclean. There wasn't any clean in this. The very manner in which it is said here, they refer to as all unclean animals. And a voice came to him and said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Eat anything. And Peter responds, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. You see the connection here? Unholy and unclean. And again a voice said to him a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up from the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold the men who had been sent by Cornelius having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. Now, I want you to make note that there's a connection between what's going on with Cornelius and this vision that Peter's getting. Does everybody agree on that? Do they see this connection that Peter's vision has something to do with Cornelius? Okay. Did you know that the typical teaching, the typical teaching of Christianity today is this is the place where God declared all unclean animals clean. Because Peter got told in a trance, arise and kill and eat. And thus, they're saying, that Peter got a vision that changed all of Leviticus 11. And that what God had said back there in the Torah, in Leviticus 11, no longer applies. You can now eat blood... You can eat fat, you can eat of any unclean creature you want, because God has made them all holy. That's what they teach. However, what does the Bible teach? What does the New Testament teach? In particular, I'm curious as to Peter, what do you think the vision means? What do you get out of it? What follows is this. Verse 18, and calling out, they were asking for Simon, who's called Peter, and saying, and while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit of him, behold, these men are looking for you. But arise, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cronius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by the holy angels to send for you, to come to his house and hear a message from you. And so he invited them in and gave them lodging, and on the next day he rose and went away with them, some of the brethren from Joppa accompanying him. On the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for him and had called together his relatives and his close friends. And when it came that Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter raised up and saying, stand up, I too am just a man. And he talked with him and he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, this is Peter, you yourselves know how it is unlawful. For a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. It doesn't say God has shown me not to call any animal unholy or unclean. He says any man. Now Peter's understanding of this vision is not about food It's about men. And by the way, wasn't that what I told you about the laws of kosher? It's really not about food. It's about holiness. It's about the difference between clean and unclean in the spiritual sense of things, between you and God. That's really what it's about. And the reason why it's there is because it's controlling one of the lusts of life so that you can be holy but not profane. How you can use that which God has given to you, but not misuse it. It goes further. Verse 34, Peter is giving further commentary. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That's a pretty profound piece of evidence there brethren by the way you Gentiles wouldn't be part of this if this vision had not been given because we Jews were quite satisfied and content to have the new covenant which was promised to the house of Judah and the house of Israel and there wasn't one Gentile mentioned in that promise we would be more than satisfied to just keep it as a Israel thing I mean it's our Messiah our Torah it's all about him it was promised to us We'll just go ahead and continue to call you guys unclean. Only that's not what God had in mind. That's not what God had in mind. And so he had to give to Peter, the apostle to the Jews, literally a vision to teach him. You will not call a man unclean. You don't get to do it. I, God, I the commandments I gave back there in Leviticus 11 don't have anything to do with men. So for you to adapt that and carry that over is a mistake. And I'm now correcting that mistake and making sure that you understand it properly. And it goes further. Look at chapter 11. This is not a singular time this vision is explained. In chapter 11, Peter now makes his trip back to Jerusalem and the word... Of these Gentiles, Cornelius, receiving the Holy Spirit, being saved, has now circulated, even the Gentiles are responding to the gospel message, and even they are receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Even they are having the tabernacle of God built within their hearts and filled with the glory of God. You remember the first portion, the first portion teaching of this thing. You remember the fire came down on the altar? And they saw the glory of God. It filled the temple. Everybody fell on their face. They saw these Gentiles, the glory of God, come upon them, filled them, dropped them, just like us Jews. Now, it's okay to see it for Jews, but that's a miracle when you see it for Gentiles. That's almost like today if you see a brother from the Church of Christ who potentially considers the possibility of Passover. That's like a miracle. Amen. That's almost like the glory of God appearing in our day. Amen? Amen. And he goes on to say, when he gets back to Jerusalem, he's now being taken to task by his fellow Jews. You went and did what with the Gentiles? Verse 2, chapter 11. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying... I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down from a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze upon it, was observing, I saw the four-footed beasts of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds, they all unclean. All the unclean stuff, we already know. And I also heard the voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This is not Peter explaining to other Jews about how that we don't have to keep kosher. This is Peter now explaining to other Jews that the Gentiles are part of the faith. And if God cleanses the Gentiles, we have no right to call them unclean. That's what the vision is about. It's being explained the second time. For my Gentile brethren who would always claim that this is really a vision about there's no more kosher, they need to go back and reread this passage. And they need to learn there was a time when they were called unclean. And now they're holy. God has made them holy. And they should be, you know, the average Gentile believer thinks, well, gee, that's the way it's always been. Not true. Not true. There was a time when Gentile simply meant unbeliever, unclean, heathen, far from God. And now God wants that changed. And he goes on to explain the rest of this. He gives the testimony about how the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They were baptized. And this is how he concludes the whole process. Verse 18 of chapter 11. And when they heard this, they quieted down, glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. That's what they learned from this vision. That's what they learned from Cornelius' testimony. That's what they learned as a result of Peter going there. God has now granted to the Gentiles the repentance unto life. I have a note written right here in my Bible in which that I have on occasion had to use when sitting down and explaining the whole business of kosher to some brethren. And I ask them if verse 18 in their Bible says, Well then, God has changed the dietary laws for Jews to eat pork. Because if that's the teaching, that's what it should have said. And it doesn't say that at all, does it? In fact, if you just go a couple of more chapters over... To Acts chapter 15, when the issue of these new Gentile believers starts coming in, there rose up, it's kind of natural that it would happen, it rose up that certain Jews of the faith, those of the Pharisaic tradition, who began to say that these Gentiles who are coming to faith, well, it's okay that God has saved them and has declared them as holy, but now they must do everything we Jews do. They, for example, must circumcise their sons. They, too, must keep all commandments. Here comes the Sabbath police, the kosher patrol, and the Torah terrorists. They have to do it the way we say. See, that's what they're really saying. And Paul, who's a Torah scholar, knows this is not right. And he is resisting to maintain the freedom of the faith against them so that other brethren would not be made subject to others concerning this and as a result of the discussion that follows Peter testifies and he says in the course of the Jerusalem council meeting he says brethren this is verse 7 you know that in the early days God made a choice among you and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe it was I who went to Cornelius the first Gentile believer wasn't Paul it was me And the one thing that we learned from that, what God has cleansed, let no man call unclean. Remember? Therefore, if God has said the man is holy, then what instruction would you be giving further to make him holy? Because God already made him holy. Which really brings us to the final point that I want to make. Is there a specific teaching in the New Testament that says that Gentile believers are to keep kosher? Yes, and amen, there certainly is. In fact, it's in the letter written to the Gentiles very directly and very specifically right here in Acts 15. Verse 19, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. And he just listed off the three issues of lust. You will not exhibit the pride of life like Nadav and Avihu who came and offered strange fire before God's altar. You will not go set up your own altar. You will not go and set up your own way of worship. You will do it exactly as the Lord has commanded. And you will not make the mistake of Nadav and Avihu And if you set up another altar in another place, other than where I've specified, and you establish a new priesthood instead of the priesthood that I've established, then I will consider everything that you sacrifice and put on that altar as sacrificed idols. It's not to me. Number one, pride of life. What I want to do. Number two, sexual perversions. There's a whole list of things that the Torah teaches that are called fornication. You will not do. The list is so specific, I don't read it in mixed company. In fact, I'm a little embarrassed reading it in front of men. You can read it for yourself, Leviticus 18. then it just summarizes the whole thing. It says, you will not let your sexual lust go to that extent. And third, he says, you will abstain from blood and from things strangled. What manner of meat you eat and call food because the Torah is very explicit. If you are of Israel and you obey the God of Israel, then you will not have anything to do with a person who is an idol worshiper. You will not go and participate in their religious services. I don't care if he did invite you as a guest. You will not participate in sexual perversions and you will not eat of unclean things. I, the Lord, am holy, and you will be holy too. And the same rule applies to the Gentiles who come to faith. You will be holy even as I am holy. And you will do it according to the definition that I give. Now, let's just put all of our cards on the table. We know, and even in the midst of our own assembly, we know that there's some brethren who don't keep these particular commandments. What what shall we do about that? I'll tell you what we're going to do about it. We're going to extend grace to our brother and we're going to allow them to learn. We're not going to lay a trip on them. We're not going to put them in subjection to our version of our understanding of kosher And we're not going to go around playing Sabbath, police, kosher patrol, and Torah terrorists. There is one judge and one lawgiver, and who are we to judge our brethren on any of those commandments? And the Bible is telling us emphatically, let us not get in the business of judging one another. Because when we do that, we take God out of his proper role, we put ourselves in his role, and then we don't know how to be brethren. So it comes down to this. It's very, very simple. When brethren come into our assembly and they don't know about Sabbath, it's okay. They'll learn. We don't have to point it out to them. They'll pick up on it. They'll read the same passages of Scripture that we will. They'll have natural questions. They'll ask when they're ready to learn and receive about that. And they'll find out that we don't have any bacon bits on our salad and and that we don't eat BLTs. And they'll go, well, why not? And they'll learn. And they'll learn it properly, loved, nurtured, brought into the congregation correctly. And they won't be embarrassed. Because if they were embarrassed, that could turn their heart. And they could be bitter and hard against the Lord if we embarrassed them, wouldn't they? And that's not what we're after. We want every man to come before the Lord with joy. And don't we want to extend to them the way the Lord was gracious to us? I mean, you know, for 30-some years, I ate pig. I'm a good Jewish boy. Ate pig. I stupid. I didn't know no better. But the Lord was gracious to me, and I learned. I didn't keep Sabbath. Oh, sometimes I slept in on Saturday, but you know I really wasn't taking the day off. But the Lord was gracious to me, and he taught me and I should extend the same courtesy, and even as the Lord has forgiven me, I should forgive others. Besides, they're not my commandments. I don't even have the right to forgive them. And so those that would come into our assembly, yes, you're going to hear about kosher, and yes, you'll hear about Sabbath, and yes, you'll hear about other commandments, but the one thing I would ask that you would do is please ignore those who would try to lay a trip on you, who would try to say to you, well, you must do that. You should do that. I'm sure that you're capable of learning from the Lord just like we did. And we're going to give you all the grace that you need you know, for you to learn just like we learned. Now, there's one exception. Here's the exception. The scripture tells us that if a person comes in and sins before God and it's willful and defiant, it says that's a different deal. You see, mercy goes to those who do it by mistake, by accident. They, just, they were ignorant. They didn't know. Mercy is not extended to those who are willful and defiant against God. Because the scripture is very explicit, about kosher, if it's any sin, we don't fellowship with people who are willful, defiant sinners and blasphemers of God. We're not supposed to have anything to do with them. And in that case, then it is appropriate for the leadership then to exercise their authority in the leadership and ask that person to be separated from this assembly. That is appropriate. By the way, I would defer to the leadership to do that, though. Do not take that upon yourself to rebuke another brethren. That's the reason why the leadership is here. They know the rules, and they can do it properly. So that that which is righteous and holy before the Lord is done correctly. Not anything different than Moses' instructions to Aaron and his... So, while we're in that zone, brethren, please plead ignorance. If you show yourself to be willful and defiant, if you want to make the statement, no, I will not obey the Lord, you're really in the wrong place. The people who are here are trying to learn to obey the Lord. And so we're the leaders and the teachers and those that take responsibility for the families here are here to promote those things. The teaching of Torah, the teaching of the Lord. Amen? So it follows that since we're all here for that purpose, then there should be no reason for us to be levying these commandments against anyone and holding anyone to scrutiny and so forth. Right? you know, to extend to them. They'll learn. And let us do it in such a way as that they're not embarrassed, they've not been wounded, they've not been chastised, but like children learning together, you know, we learn together. Amen? The whole purpose, the whole purpose of these instructions and these commandments are to teach us, to teach us so that we might have the proper definition God would have for what is holy. The really interesting part about this whole lesson for us, though, is that, see, God has already made us holy. You clearly can't do anything to make yourself holy. What you can do is do... If you just don't do anything at all, you'll still be holy before the Lord. The tallit that I wear bears the symbology of that. It's a white covering garment representing the covering of the Lord. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. I'm covered by the Lord. My sins are white as snow. And then we're instructed to put a blue line in it. A line that on this side of the line shall be holy. On that side of the line shall be the world profane. So you're asking, why so many lines? Because I keep crossing the line. And God has to keep drawing the line out in front of me. Now, after a while, I'm supposed to learn don't cross the line anymore, Monty. You're still holy, but don't cross the line anymore. Just stay where you are. Just be who you are. And really, that's what these instructions are trying to tell you. They're not trying to tell you how to be holy. They're trying to tell you how to keep from profaning yourself. Don't profane yourself by going to the lust. Just accept what I've already given to you and meet your needs, and you'll be fine right where you're at. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Torah. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us holy. Thank you, Lord, that we don't do works to be righteous. It's by your righteousness and your covering that we receive all of those blessings. Lord, but what we are in need of is instructions how to keep from profaning ourselves. And so you give us instructions, Lord, throughout your scriptures about how to deal with life, how to deal with our ego, our person, who are we, how we answer that question. You give us instructions about how that we will sexually behave so that we'll not be perverse and profane. And you also give us commandments about life and eating food so that we'll not be profane that will not do of the unclean. Lord, we would pray that you would give us your right and proper instruction concerning this, that we would not be learning commandments so that we could chastise or do harm to another brother, but rather that we might walk uprightly before our God and be concerned about our business, our affairs, you know, before you. So, Lord, thank you for the teaching of this. Thank you, Lord, for Peter's vision and the role of the Gentiles to come in and how that they're not to be called unclean. They're not part of this instruction. They're separate. And Lord, I would pray that in our congregation that even by this subject being broached, that you would help and encourage to teach our brethren how to join in more fully and completely in the fellowship of this congregation to walk uprightly before you, Lord. So we thank you, Lord, for your instructions and your commandments. And we thank you, Lord, for your mercy that you extend to us in learning how to keep them. And we thank you for all this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Line and Line Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720. 968 Norman, Oklahoma 73070. Our web address is www.lionlam.net. Thank you.